Welcome to The Soloist, an occasional podcast series about solo performance and solo performers. Hi, I'm Steve, Steve Greer, a theatre academic and writer, and in this episode I'm talking with the director and performer Ewan Downey. When we sat down to talk earlier this year, Ewan was just finishing work on a new solo show, a show called Achilles, a new adaptation of the classical myth and the events around the Siege of Troy. Our conversation, though, is about more than just that one show. It's really about the influence of ensemble and laboratory practice on Ewan's work, and particularly his work with his own company, Company of Wolves. As you'll hear in just a second, that work was heavily informed by Ewan's time training and then as a company member with Song of the Goat, a theatre company based in Poland known for its ensemble and laboratory practice. What's interesting here is maybe how Ewan has drawn on or been informed by that laboratory practice when really the tempo of making associated, often associated with laboratory practice, a quite long drawn out exploratory process is quite incompatible with how theatre making is funded here in the UK, where there is a really tight timeline between creation and production. We start though with me asking Ewan about how it was he came to work with that company in the first place. So I was in Ireland after, I was in Dublin after I graduated and um, my agent was a co-op and there there was just a a flyer came through about this workshop. Um, There was some sort of little fund which supported physical performance in uh, in Dublin. I don't think it exists anymore. And um, this company, Song of the Goat, was coming in. If you applied, it was free. So I, I'd never heard of them. It looked kind of interesting. It wasn't. I think I was doing a tiny little part of the gate at the time. So I, I thought, well, I've got time to do this, and I applied. I went along and I did this workshop, which happened to be my old drama school, and uh, it was one of these moments we just sort of had five days with these people, and it was a totally extraordinary opening kind of uh, let's do that um, sort of mind-blowing experience where I touched kind of parts of performance that I never had didn't really know existed or certainly had hardly ever got to and then at the end just went what the, f- what the fuck was that what was that I have no context to put that in it's so unlike everything else so I thought well I, I have to go and do more of it and find out what it is and then um, I went uh a year or so later, I think it was, maybe nine months later, I went out to Poland. I did a month-long workshop with the same people, um, which was also amazing. But again, at the end of the month, I was kind of, I, I just, this is amazing, but I don't know what the, what the fuck is it. Um, I, by, um, and then I... Uh, and then I heard that they had an MA, they were starting an MA program. Yeah. And this was the... The MA program doesn't exist anymore, but originally it was a it was an MA that ran about every two years. I think maybe there was five editions of it or something, and it was run by Manchester Metropolitan University in collaboration with Song of the Goat Theatre. Um, and uh, so I applied for the first year of that, and and then I think it was delayed a year, and so a couple of years later I went on that, and that was nineteen uh, two thousand and four, two thousand five, I think it ran. So then I had about nine months. Uh, and that was all based Out there in in Wrocław. We were in uh, in uh, Manchester for about a week or t- ten days or something, um, and that was very that was kind of twenty five hours a week of really intense physical training and vocal training, and then making a show and, and an expedition to the north of Greece. Which actually, the the expedition to the north of Greece was 
definitely one of the kind of roots of, it, of the show of Achilles because that was where I, uh, some of the music came from um, which was music that was unused in the production that we made in Poland then I, I, I some of the people on that course had always wanted to join the company and it never be, that had never been my kind of ulterior motive yeah. I just wanted to learn and, and um, find some way to apply this thing in my own way of working and I still don't think I would have been able to do it at the end of the Masters because it's, it's just too I think I was too kind of um, my the ideas about theatre or my way of naturally way of working was still too kind of stuck in my own head rather than connecting the head and the body if you like and um, then I went to my Masters project so I had to do a solo project okay or, or a uh, you had to do a research project that was kind of a research performance project and that was I, I did that on the Iliad so it was the first contact with using this material so it's okay. really I mean it's really back to then that that, um, that material at the end sort of th at the end of that time the director Grzegorz from Poland called to do tutorials with us very un probably very unprofessionally at the end of the tutorial my tutorial he was talking about the work and then he said do you think you'd like to see if you could join the company I'm just starting a new project and I said yes, and was very surprised. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't. I was, it was, a, it was a surprising invitation for me. Actually, I don't know what made them do it. Actually, because I, I don't. Yeah, maybe it was obvious to them. But um, and then I, I, it was about six months after that that I went out to Poland, and then I then I joined Songs. And you moved there to live there and work there. Yeah, I, but initially it was very initially it was two weeks, and okay. then a bit of a gap, and then two weeks, and it was really very much along the lines of like, come and see if this will work out. Okay. Um, and really, for the first year at least, uh, I did feel like I could be fired at any point. Um, <laughs> you know, you go in and be like, nope, sorry. And the first part of the time that I was in, in Paul, we were working on Macbeth. We spent about six months or nine months on working on Macbeth and then we showed a version of it at the RSC as part of their Complete Works Festival. And then at the end of that, I went and had a... They, the company was doing some other performances or older performances, so I had a break for a few months. Went back to London, was working, started to get emails saying, oh, so-and-so's been fired, so-and-so's been fired, so-and-so's been fired, so-and-so's been fired, this person's been fired, this person's been fired. Like, so... Because it was 14 people in the cast that we yeah. worked on in... in, in, um, in, in uh, that we went to the RSC with. And by the time I went back to Poland in June or something, uh... Ten of them had been fired, um, and where was that? Was it just a, <clears throat> the project coming to an end, or was it no? A, because like a real change of direction. No, because the, 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 well, the, the, we continued to work on Macbeth after that. It was meant to be. This was a project that the idea was the thing at the RSC was a work in progress, and it would be completed. Yeah, but um, that cast had a lot of. There was a lot of um, difficult personal relationships in that cast. Yeah, the dynamic was bad. Um, so I, I think that was part of it um, I'm not sure exactly on the rationale but what I do know is I went back to Poland and actually I thought I had my flight book back and I thought I'm going to arrive back and they're going to go what are you doing here? Oh fuck we forgot to fire you <laughs> um, <laughs> and, but actually it turned out not to be that way and then there was this kind of weird period of time where we we're kind of in a holding pattern waiting to see exactly who from the original group was going to be in the piece as we moved on and then finally 
it was just me and the three most experienced members of the company. So I, you know, I was the least experienced member of the company and had just joined. And then there was Anna Zbzitska, who had, who was Chagos's ex-wife, had founded the company and been in Gajanitsa for 18 years previous. Gabriel Gawin, who's now was Bruford, who mm-hmm. had been a founder member and had worked with Brooke previously. Um, and Ian Morgan, who had been in the company for about five years, I think, at that time, but had spent four years with Grotowski. And me, I was like... Okay, so then we start started working on the started working on the piece. Quite so a, I think I've seen production photographs of, um, of Macbeth. Maybe they're showing a, the RSC. There's a few of them in like in academic journals and other discussions yeah. online. So what was that? So what was that? What did that show turn into? Because it, did you rebuild? Did that cast come back up to scale, or did it remain this? This it went. It it, it went from because the, the original sort of work in progress was big a lot of people and they had the, there was this sort of group of Siberian singers in it as well that, that, that kind of held the music together um, when we went back to it it started with four and it went up to seven and they were newish people that were brought in um, and it was very much a kind of studio production and it's something that's always interested me about Chegos because I don't really have the this ambition so I kind of wonder why he does is um, he always wanted to work with bigger casts whereas to me seven is like I can't get seven performers in Scotland I can get five that's fine yeah. I'd like you know seven would be nice except it would be hard to tour um, but the idea of really hankering after working with 12 or 14 people I don't I don't know why I don't really have that ambition um, and he does definitely like, because that was the was it the uh, was it called songs of Lear? Seems songs like. of Lear is like fourteen yeah, people, has a really fifteen large people, ensemble. Yeah. and then the one after that, Return to the Voice, is a similar thing. And I saw their Hamlet version of Hamlet in the summer that had a, a lot of people in twelve or so. so. But I mean, watching watching again, kind of little moments of, um, <coughs> of of songs of Lear, I wonder whether that it felt like there was something to do with the choral voice that was, yeah. that was maybe driving that ambition to have this large group of people. Yes. From what I understand of the um, of kind of work of, of Song of the Bay, and also maybe the, the kind of training as well, is this kind of centrality of the voice. Yeah. That though, that the phrase that keeps turning up in, as I read about it was this idea of the kind of coordination technique. Yes. This idea of, of your kind of all of your available, I guess, um, Resources that you have as a performer being interconnected, and yeah. that you need to get them to speak to each other. Yeah, yeah. I think that the it's interesting you should say the centrality of the voice because I think that's where I diverge from okay. them. Is that they? Is that Jagos is Jagos, for Jagos music is the absolutely the thing. It's the the music, and it, like if the music if the music works. I think this has changed over time. He's much less interested in movement and much more interested in music. And I've kind of gone the other way. Um, I'm, I, you know, we still work with music and I'm very interested in music, but I'm, uh, I'm much more interested in music and now in connecting together that physical practice with words and finding a way that they can support each other and not sort of close each other off. So... So you spent this period of six years working, kind of working in Poland or working with the company, and kind of maybe coming back and forth between here and Scotland. Yeah. What's the sinew? Where's the line of flight between that work and then starting up as company evolves? 
um, and being based back in Scotland full time again. Well, uh, again. There, there was a there was a sort of process of. Um, I guess a sort of process of disillusionment in Poland. Um, and this was... I think it would have happened anyway, but um, Czegos uh, took, a, took a sort of a, a, a job working for a theatre in Warsaw. He took this job as an artistic director of a theatre and his idea was that he would bring the, us as the company to the theatre and that we would sort of become part of it. Yeah. But he really didn't have any idea... I think what he was getting into the kind of the, the entrenched politics and of an the, institution, yeah. Because in Poland, all the all the actors are on lifetime contracts, and anyway, it didn't really work. At some point, we started talking about leaving, and um, I realised that something had changed for me in that I used to be an actor that people would say, "Oh, I think you should probably direct," and I would take it as some kind of an insult to my acting and do a, throw a hissy fit. Um, and suddenly the idea of directing didn't upset me anymore and actually I liked the idea and, I, and I'd always known that if I was going to go back to the UK and set up a company I couldn't really do it as an actor because you can't really lead the project as an actor so you have to be the director um, and we, then we started to look at coming back to Scotland and then the process of extraction took kind of two years really because I was still performing Beth and Songs of the Year and so on so I was kind of back and forward when we came out, we wanted to try and form an ensemble and kind of be a, I don't know what you'd call it, but, but, but I guess I guess in our mind was to be as close to that laboratory theatre model as possible. Because, I mean, that's still how you describe... Um, Absolutely. Um, and there is this... It is a, it's a tricky... Um, because in the ensemble theatre model, uh, in the in laboratory theatre, there are two things that overlap. One is a process of uh, experiment, and particularly experiment that happens through improvisation and through uh, through training and through physical exploration rather than through ideas. Um, what some people might call hot improvising, like hot devising rather than cold devising. Yeah. Um, the other thing that tends to overlap with that is the idea of a permanent ensemble, because to some extent it's there. And this isn't entirely true, but a lot of the, some of the time it's useful to have people who work with you for a reasonably long amount of time mm-hmm. to be able to do that. Um, and what's happened in the last since we set up the company is that those ideas have sort of started to pull apart in that we've found that when we have really preserved the company we've we preserved the company almost entirely from uh, Invisible Empire to Seven Hungers yeah only one person changed out of five and actually it turned out to limit the work in that because you're working in a pro- I, because we're working in a kind of project basis and we, don't, we can't pay, have people with us all the time mm-hmm. there's a limit to the amount of the sort of areas of practice I've, that we have available to us that we introduce for each project it's the things that we think are somehow suited to, the, to that project are the areas of training that we explore and it was like that in Poland as well but you, you sort of concentrate on certain things and then coming to another when we came to Seven Hungers having concentrated on one aspect of training for Invisible Empire we found we found that the people who'd been in Invisible Empire thought that what they 
the way that we've made that show was the way that we make work and where it didn't really want to explore something new. Oh, yeah. Whereas, and, and, that, and that is exactly the opposite. You know, we're just like, oh, no, that's so, so wrong. But I think also because that, that idea that the practice would change with each performance... Uh, well, it's an enormous... Re- it's a huge ask. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a huge ask, and it's also something which was so obvious to me that I couldn't even really put it into words. So then you're in this, you're having this kind of miscommunication with these performers because I, I couldn't, if I could have taken them aside and said, okay, the practice is going to change with these performance and we're going to really start again. It will have some, uh, that would have maybe helped, <laughs> but I didn't know. I didn't, didn't know, know what to say. That's what it was that you needed to explain. Yeah. I mean, there's might be something there about, the kind of cultural theatrical space in the UK, despite you know it's kind of enormous diversity within it, that the that the laboratory model is still really an outlier, still yes, really absolutely. foreign. And so the idea of you might bring a group of people together and work and develop a company, but then you kind of bring the cliche of like finding your voice or whatever, but you find your model of working. Yeah, and then you are a company that does X. Like you yes. work out what it is that you do, and then you do it. Yeah, for as many times as you can get the money to do it. Yeah, that's right. So the idea of getting really good at something, then kind of going, okay, well we've done that. Let's try another thing. Yeah, is is not what we're like. A lot of data practitioners are set up for. They might desire it, but they're not. Like the industry doesn't set us any of us up to 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 be ready for it. And that, and, and and I think that's that's absolutely true and it's exactly what we've done is try as much as possible to change the practice between each show. And so that, because the two first two shows were quite musically based, quite yeah. um, quite vocally based, very a lot of singing nearly all the time, a lot of polyphonic work, a bit like song but much more based in song of the goats work. And Anna and I at the end of the in fact at the end of the first show, but particularly after the second show, we said, Okay, well we we have to be really careful because if we're not careful we're going to be the company that sings. Let's just get rid of that for a while. Um. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, am I, I was trying to remember in the, so the end of things, which is another ensemble show, yeah. if there was any choral singing in that at all, if there was any voice work, and, and I, it doesn't stick out in my memory. There must have been some. There was voice work in it, but I don't remember there being, like, song. In yeah, it. There, was, um, uh, there was one song, which was... Uh, which was uh, Susie and the Banshees. So. Um, <laughs> so quite a distance from kind of all of like the uh, like the Balkan laments. Kind yeah, yeah. Of. Well, this this sort of started with um, it started with the, I don't know. It's always something that's quite tickled me, but it started with um, brief history because there was one song in brief history as well, which was uh, um, Windmills of Your Mind. Okay. Um, uh, which absolutely fitted the piece. It was perfect for the piece, uh, and and somehow was a, sort of structured the piece. But yeah, so we, it's uh, yeah, so it's either very intense vocal laments or karaoke. <laughs> so okay, so like the, I mean, maybe this fits the narrative then of, of of you as a as a company. Maybe we need to talk directly about the relationship that you and Anna have as a kind of creative pair. Maybe at the heart of it, maybe this narrative makes sense of you deliberately wanting to re, to take what you're doing and leap off into another unknown space every time you do a thing. But where does the? When did you realise that you wanted to make a solo show? So homemade uh-huh. ensemble works of different sizes. Yeah, we've got one thread of, of kind of inspiration of you, of kind of, which comes from your associations through Song of, of the Goat. Maybe in terms of the original source material yeah. as much as anything else. But 
the idea of making a piece of solo work when everything else up until that point seems to have been encounters with different kinds of ensemble practice. Yeah, I think that, uh, that, that there is a there is a thread from the from the um, uh, from the t- the changing practice into the um, into the solo work, which is, and I think in a way this is slightly a, related to leaving Poland as well in the process of leaving Poland. And, it, and it, even further back, it relates to Keith Johnston, is something that Keith Johnston talks about in Impro is that when he started teaching improvisation, what he did was he made a list of the things that were forbidden to do in school, and then he made people do them. Um, and every, every piece of work, uh, just by definition... Um, by the fact that you choose certain things and you don't choose other things for a, a piece of work, has some things which are sort of which are conta- which are core to it and contained in it, and other parts which are which are forbidden. Like in lots of the and and in some cases that's related to the um, to the theme, and in some cases it's related to a sort of uh, a paradigm of making work that people have. Uh, so in most theatre, shit acting isn't allowed like yeah. we discourage people from doing bad acting <laughs> yeah, as a rule as a rule but um, but you can also go and, and something that I did when I left Song of the Goat is I made a list of the things that were forbidden in Song of the Goat can you remember what was on that list uh, yeah um, some of them uh, um, definitely the, the things the things which I were so being chaotic um, being out of tune uh, mocking things. Um, generally, humour was mostly very s- treated with a lot of suspicion, but mocking things particularly. Uh-huh. Um, because there's a sort of in that Polish laboratory stream, there's there's a very there's a sort of deep seriousness that is absolutely not present in most of British theatre. Um, which, uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes people ask me, what, what can British theatre and Polish theatre learn from each other? And I would, you know, as it, it's kind of a joke, but you say, well, basically British theatre can learn to be more serious from Polish theatre, and Polish theatre can learn to be less serious from British theatre. And probably everybody, it would be good for both sides to get some of the other. But but that's, that list of... Uh, yeah, so mocking, mocking, being chaotic, being clumsy. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I can't think of anything else. Just oh, being intellectual. Okay. Being intellectual, absolutely forbidden. Um, so the, you, so the expectation that you would work from from instinct, from the body. Yeah, they absolutely like cut off the cut off this bit's no use to you essentially. And that's peculiar uh, to me, given that like if the account of like coordination is this kind of organic for me that that's I mean maybe that speaks to like my misapprehension of the whole of the process that I would think that's like mind and body working in tandem right yes I'm not saying it's consistent it's definitely <laughs> I, but I, I think that, that that's that's absolutely a hole yeah in their it, it's a hole in their practice that uh, that they don't perceive yeah. That there's and it's it's imported actually from Gardenitsa. Gardenitsa had this horror of intellect of in being intellectual. If you were devising and so on the go, at least when I was there, if somebody came, if somebody proposed something and you wanted to kill the idea, all you had to do was say, oh, "I think that's a bit intellectual," and everybody would just step away from it. And it was like, I mean, it was like a 
you know, it's like it was so. You didn't ever have to make the argument. You could just kill an idea by saying that whether it was good or bad or whatever, it doesn't matter. Because as soon as it was tar- tarred with being intellectual, everybody just... It was, it's amazing. And it took me a while to notice that that was true. So these are some of the areas that in our practice I've wanted to explore is how do you, how do you connect the body and the intellect? I don't know fuck knows, but you know, that's like... that's. I don't want it. I don't want those things to be Un, unspeakable and yeah. untouchable. How do? You, what about singing out of tune? What about act, bad acting? What about being chaotic? What about mocking? Like, and and so so and similarly in in Song of the Goat, everything was done with the whole company. Even if you were working individually, the whole company was always in the room. Um, and so I think that's probably what led me to go, oh, I want to know what happens if I go in a room on my own. Okay. okay. No director, nothing, just me. What happens? <laughs> so from <coughs> what I, I, under, I understood of uh, your process, and I, th- I can't remember whether it was, uh, it was like an interview uh, during the development process, I can't remember whether it was with like the, the Herald or the Skinny or someone, someone in Scottish press. National, the national. Yeah, it yeah. was with the national. That was it. Um, are you talking about um, having a kind of written text and a physical score, and that your kind of your devising and rehearsal process was a, a kind of a feedback loop with yeah. each feeding back into the other, into the other, into the other. Yeah. Can you say more about that? That I mean, what's what's the working day like then? When with that's your <laughs> if that's your oh, process. Well. <laughs> one of the things I'm always interested in it like the, that yeah, Monday the, morning 9am I've got to I've got to put in a week's work the most the most annoying part of that the most annoying part of that uh, if you like is that um, I had to learn about four different versions of the play over the course of rehearsing it and making it because there is an element to which it's not possible to try and see how the physical and the and the text tool uh, interlock without actually knowing the text and that was just immen- immensely time consuming but um, I mean really what it depends because I, I did a lot of the writing outside of the room at some points I did some of the writing in the room but a lot of the time I did the writing in between rehearsal blocks and then I would go in and I, um, the a lot of the physical work not all of it by any means but a lot of it had existed for a long time well before there was any script in fact, well before I'd even started working on Achilles, I was working on... Uh, I had an idea that it would be a completely different story. I didn't know that it was going to be about Achilles. But I knew the sort of thematic basis of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that it was about grief and about rage and that kind of thing. And um, and I, I created some of the physical actions. And then the story of Achilles kind of came online, suddenly incredibly obvious that that was what it was. And then there was the realisation... Well, fuck! If I if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to write a version of it because I was first off I was looking to see where can I just take bits out of somebody else's translation of the Iliad. Realised it wouldn't work at all. Realised I had to write my own version because it's that story filtered through my consciousness that actually fits the work that I'm making. So then then in a way it's sort of going almost entirely backwards from what people you'd normally rehearse a play. <laughs> so then at some point I go oh right I've got to write a version. Of it. So then I had to write it and then. And then there was a writing process, which um, was a bit like the song, the goat process, where I started off writing. I just did the bits 
I just did the, the like the high points, if you like, okay. which are the hottest bits. And I did a, quite a lot of rehearsal on that, putting that together with the physical stuff, creating. And, and this was before this last bit where I sort of finished the show. I had a work sharing. I was working with Ian Spink then, and I had a work sharing at um, the Citizens again. Uh, and that it kind of got to a certain point. It felt like it was. There was, I didn't know what the next development was but then so the next development really was to wait a while and watch the video of what I had okay so you you make is that part of your process you film yourself when you're that was something that I discovered I, I, I've used it a little bit in, in group processes but mostly but in uh, the solo process it was very useful only at certain points I found that it was useful when sort of creating raw material because it allows you it would allow me to perceive the moments where something connects and then I go oh, I think maybe I should look more at that and it was also useful once I'd gone through a rehearsal process and was at the point where the piece is sort of mostly made because then you can perceive the bits where you go like oh I've gone dead there haven't I right that's not working at all I'll have to fix that um, so then watching the video of what I made sort of midway through the process where it was the high points, what I realized was that I think you can sustain that sort of a, that sort of a thing where it's just the high points with a group, but with a single performer, I'm just left watching somebody having a very intense experience for like 35 minutes. And I wonder why, and I and I also then wonder why I should care. Okay, so it's a really intense experience, but just for that one person. Yeah, and you're not like, necessarily for what in the name of the fuck is going on here? Why is this person like twitching a lot? Um, and so then, I, then I sort of went backwards and realised that I had to ground the piece. And Ian said to me, "Is that could you write something like a, a, a paragraph, something very quick that sort of explains the story up to this point?" And I looked at it, and I and I thought about it, and then I thought, I can't do that because actually I need to do it properly. And the whole first act essentially is that paragraph, so it's like a third of the piece, possibly more than a third of the text of the piece, mm -hmm. is setting the sort of the grounding of everything. Yeah. So that then the high points have some sort of sense to them. I suppose it's watching it. I was kind of conscious of maybe like two or three different levels of logic or like of, of structure kind of floating against each other that on the one hand you have this like linear narrative you know the story yeah of this happens and this happens and these are the consequences yeah but playing against that is a physical score which is a non-literal -lin linear narrative I mean, yeah. it's unfolding in time but it's not a story in the same way mm. and then there are those laments as well yeah which kind of stand out as moments in the narrative mm -hmm. but they're not now they're, they're weirdly like they're not they're non-narrative events yes yes i think that's um one of the things i use a uh, sort of mentally use as a model quite a lot is is greek tragedy in, and that's how greek tragedy works is if you've got the choruses and you've got the scenes and the scenes drive the narrative forward and the choruses don't they do and some of them they do, but mostly but they, they sort of, they're, they're kind of digging into Yeah, they have something. a different function too. Um, and that's, um, I think that's the thing with Song of the Goats practice, is that it's basically just the choruses. You don't get the story. Um, and 
uh, and with with a single performer, I think that's very hard to do. I, I, I'm also not sure I'd want to watch it because I mean, so many in so many respects, I think like the theatricality of it for me had a lot to do with the kind of what's it called, um, kind of the tradition of the poor theatre. Yeah, you know, it really centred on the on the the actor or the performer, and the lighting cues might be nice, but that's not what that's not yeah. really that that really is very much marginal dressing. Yes. I mean, that's, um, and just that's, a, no insult to the work that was no, done no, on no. writing it. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's very um, it's slightly. It's a bit annoying for. I think it's it, like I, 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 I like working with our lighting designer, but actually, there is part of me that that, that often thinks uh, I actually like it when we do it when we do it without any of that stuff. And sort of I, originally, my idea with that show was I wanted to be able to do it just in a kind of a sort of emptyish room. Like one of the, do you know Killing Park complex? So the upstairs in Killing Park mm-hmm. complex before they put the Formica floor down, I thought that would be quite a good place to do it. The problem is, is when you tour something, you don't get an empty room. You get like a black box theater, and then you're sort of there's this kind of heavy dark and you need thing. To do so you need to something. Yeah. So then we needed a design and we needed lights. But it would still be possible to do it that way. But it's, and that, <laughs> that in itself is really interesting to me that the. The, the the kind of imagined kind of black box is asserting its own kind of dramaturgical demands on work. Absolutely. And it's me, you know, we talk about with students from time to time about how the black box space is not a neutral space at all. Yeah. And that it comes with its own tastes and sensibilities. But it's it can sometimes be really difficult to like catch sight of them. They're like in the corner of your eye almost, but you realise you're adapting yourself to its needs. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think it, I think it's um it's something I think about a lot is it, since coming back here, it, because I grew up in a kind of British tradition, although my, like my, my, I realised that my view of theatre has been shaped so much by the citizens because I grew up going to the crazy experimental stuff that they did in the citizens in the like sort of late in the, in the eighties and early nineties. Um, and uh, I mean, I think they had calmed down slightly by the time I, I was going to things. It wasn't like naked Macbeths with men as Lady Macbeth and stuff, which which was sort of back in the heyday. But but um, there was still that spirit there, um, and I spend I spent quite a lot of time thinking about the the assumptions that are because making theatre is a kind of a game. You play it in a certain sort of a way. It has a certain out, outcomes, but we a lot of the assumptions that we make are very, like the brief history of evil, the two-hander we made, um, we ended up not having a director. And it was extraordinary how, how difficult that was initially because both of us as performers uh, have this assumption about how rehearsals are, which involves a figure who is in charge of certain things, which actually... Like, for example, dealing with conflict. The director's job is to earth or deal with conflict. Yeah. You've no director, but you still have the assumption that it's somebody else's job to deal with that. It's that that's really hard. And then you then, then you and then we were confronted by the fact that we were basically shirking our responsibilities to deal with our own deal with our conflicts. And then we go, right, well, so we have to work out how do we do that internally to the process? How do we and, and we started to develop a process to 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 deal with that, um, and to make that part of our rehearsal process and our touring process. And then afterwards, as a 
I, as a director, go, actually, I think it would be better if that was always the case. I don't think the director should be the one that deals with yeah, conflict. The traffic cop, actually, yeah. yeah, actually, everybody should take responsibility for their shit. And then I wonder, like, as a director, what's the minimum I can do? What, you know, <laughs> what are the things the director's actually needed for? And I don't know. <laughs> but I love the idea of kind of uh, an approach to taking directing seriously begins with the question, what's the minimum I can do? Yeah. Well, like, I mean, you want, want what I, I, because for, for me, and, and I'm not, you know, absolutely haven't solved this, and I'm just as guilty as everybody, every director of sort of taking on too much and taking too much ownership of things. And it's incredibly hard to do because you get excited and you want things to go a certain way but I do really believe that the more the more the performers can the more it can be the performers work the more they can invest in it and I don't really like the phrase sense of ownership because it sounds like it's a lie when you say oh, you, I want to give the performers a sense of ownership it's like I want to make them feel like this no no I want them to own the fucking thing I want it to be theirs and if I can how little I can do to do I was talking to another director do you know Abby Anderson yeah, so um, I was talking to her at the weekend, and um, she was talking about how it was a watershed moment to her watching Simon a video of Simon McBurney directing Street of Crocodiles because it's a devised piece, mm-hmm. and then but he's screaming at the actors and shouting at them to try and make do stuff, and she was like, but "How can you do that in a devised process?" And I said. But I, and she and she said she, she took a long time to grapple with this, and we essentially. We sort of agreed that actually the thing is is that at some point the director director has to become custodian of a mutually agreed standard. That like actually, yes, you make it together, but then somebody has to be the one who goes, You're not fucking doing it. You have to do the thing that we said you were gonna do, and you have to do it repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know? so maybe this is the, like to loop back around, I don't want to take up um, huge amounts more of your All time. Right. Is is that how do you do that for yourself in a solo process. I, well, at the moment, I don't. Um, <laughs> at, the, at the moment, um, so I have a co-director, Ian Spink, who I'm very lucky to have, who is a, so has worked with. He's an amazing um, choreographer and director, and we've worked together quite a long time because he came in. He stepped first started working on Achilles about a year ago, I think. He came in towards the end of the. Sort of R and D, so he and he was somebody who was able to listen and watch and so until he understood what it was I was trying to do, and then to help me do it, and then to be able to go while this bit isn't working to do something different. No, you're still not doing it. No, you're still not doing it. You're still not. Okay, now you're doing right. Now, now we move on to this. So you kind of have a loop where it sounds as though he's coming into the process, learning like both the logic and the standard that the work is setting for itself. Yes. And then this kind of trying to hold you to account yeah. to yeah. that standard. Yeah. And I think both of us also, I think he recognises, there's a mutual recognition that, that the standard is an ever-increasing one as well. That you, that like, once you get there, there's another, th- there's another thing to get to. Um, and I think it helps that he's a choreographer, because I, having been in Poland a long time, I'm... Uh, a performer who uh, I'd much prefer that people just say you're being shit now than 
Um, yeah, that's terribly good. But um, if you could just do a little bit more of this sort of thing, I'm kind of like to me that's just a waste of time because I've had police directors screaming your shit, your shit, your shit at me for you know six years, uh, and I, it doesn't bother me that much anymore. So I'd rather just get it done quickly. And he, because he's a choreographer, I think it's not that he shouts and stuff, but he's quite he's quite capable of being direct, whereas some people are not that. And I very much appreciate that. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, uh, he's much more polite than shouting, but but he's very. Uh, but to have someone who yeah. can give you someone who can give you direct feedback that you can trust or you can do something with is a thing to be treasured. Absolutely, and I think. Possibly the answer to your question is uh, your answer to your question about how you give yourself feedback. I think the only there are two mechanisms I can think of. I don't think either of them would replace a live person. One mechanism, and they'd probably balance each other. One mechanism is if I get to the point with the show where I can perceive the audience's attention fluctuations well that gives me something to work with. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, is to watch video every now and then and to go to be able to, to watch it. Because I, I, what I found working with video with myself is that uh, once I can distance myself from the performer in the video, which takes less and less time the more I do it, mm-hmm. um, I can, instead of going, watching myself in video, I can go, oh, that guy's not doing a very good job there he should do this and, and then I can write the notes and then I can make myself do it. So it's quite interesting that you have to kind of, there's like a real separation of that guy, not brackets, me, but not me. He's doing a bad job. I'll write down some notes which for him, are, for him, that yeah. someone else, me will give him. Yeah. I should me put him in a sealed envelope day. and come in and you know, I come in to rehearse. What did he say? Oh, the bastard. <laughs> So that was me and you and Danley talking earlier this year in Glasgow. So Ewan's show, Achilles, is on at Summerhall Venue during the Edinburgh Fringe 2018. It's there for the full month. If you're in town, uh, go and see it. It's a really great piece of uh, work which fuses storytelling and physical theatre. Something really, really distinctive about it. And it's going to be fascinating to see what kind of work uh, Ewan makes by himself um, and, and with others again in the future. So for other episodes in this series, you can go to my website, stevegreer.org, which also has details of my other projects and the other kinds of work I get up to. But for now, thanks for listening.